Are you guys well today? <laughs> Let me ask that question again. Are you well today? <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm hanging in there. Um, so I want to do a little thing to begin with today that is probably going to essentially uh, tell us how old everyone is in the room. Uh, I want you to raise your hand if ever as a child you had your mouth washed out with soap. Yep, everybody over 40, pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the deal. Back in the olden days when your parents used to be allowed to abuse you, uh, this was the way we were treated. Um, I remember a time in which uh, I had probably, you know, very out of character for me, spoken something inappropriate uh, as a way of expressing my feelings toward my brother. And uh, my mother happened to be standing right behind me when I said it. And that resulted in being grabbed by the ear, dragged into the bathroom, and a bar of soap being jammed into my mouth. And I can tell you that uh, Irish Spring does not taste like it smells. Uh, and uh, I learned a lesson that day. My lesson was never use bad language when your mother is close enough to hear you, right? Um, now, it didn't change at all the kind of language that I used in the future, I must be honest with you. Um, why didn't my mom's punishment fix my language problem? Because the problem wasn't in my mouth, the problem was in my heart, right? And see, it seems like every approach to religion that man has been able to come up with has really been <clears throat> about trying to uh, deal with the problem on the outside and doesn't really have any impact on the inside. So this is something Jesus talked about all of the time. He was constantly, whenever he got a chance to talk to religious people, he was usually talking to them about this issue of hypocrisy. You know, on the outside, you, you live like this, you do this, you do this, you follow all these rules and all that kind of stuff. But on the inside, there's something really, really wrong. The Pharisees and the rabbis of Jesus' day, they had the approach of washing people's mouths out with soap. And nothing was changing in people's hearts. Nobody was finding themselves with a changed heart. And as Jesus put it when speaking to them, he said, you know, you guys, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. So there's this approach that we tend to take that says, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be religious. That means I'm going to follow a bunch of laws. That means there's going to be a set of rules that govern my life. That means there's going to be a bunch of things that I would really like to do that I am not allowed to do. It means that there are things that I'm going to have to give up. And that's what most of us think of when we think of religion. And Jesus came and said, I have a completely different model for you to think about. Instead of this outward religion, what would happen if God had a chance to really change your heart on the inside? Because his message was totally different. Jesus did not come to say, here's what you can't do. Here's what I'm going to take away from you. Here's what you're not allowed to have. Here's what you can no longer enjoy. He didn't come, in fact, to take anything away from us at all. He came to give us something. 
And that really made him stand out. That's why so often they were saying, why does he always hang out with the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and all those outcast people? It's because the outcast people were so drawn to him because his message was a message of transformation of the life, not a message of merely uh, cleaning the cup on the outside, if you will. And so um, Jesus came to give us something. He came to give us life, and that more abundantly, John 10.10. And I tell you this today because I want to prepare you to hear what Jesus has to tell us today through a parable. And I want to just warn you in advance. Today, God is going to ask you to give something up. Today, God is going to ask you to give something up that is really hard to give up. And I just want to tell you that in advance because if you'll trust him enough to obey him in this, you're going to find that you didn't lose anything, but you gained abundant life. So that's the approach we're going to take as we look at these parables today. We're going to jump into the middle of the book of Matthew. We're, we're doing a series on the parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus told as a way of illustrating these great truths. And we're just sort of bouncing around the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking at these different stories that Jesus told. And the problem with doing it this way is that we're always looking at these passages without a full understanding of the context, okay? So I want you to turn to Matthew 18, but while you're turning there, I want to give you some context. Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 18 about the issue of reconciliation. What happens when someone has offended you? What happens when somebody has hurt you? What happens when somebody has abused you? What happens when somebody is embracing sin and they're sinning against you? And what are you supposed to do about that? And in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, he starts to explain. He says, listen, you go to the person directly and lovingly and you address the issue with them which is exactly the opposite of what most of us naturally do. Most of us, when someone has offended us, we don't go to that person and deal with it lovingly. Instead, we go to everybody else and gossip about that person, right? Jesus said, no, you're going to go straight to the person and lovingly, directly seek reconciliation. You're looking to patch up what is broken, even though you're the one who's offended. And then he goes on and says, and if that person will not be reconciled, then you should bring a couple of more people with you and maybe together you can convince him that he should turn from his sin and be reconciled. And if he won't respond even to the group of you, then you go to the church leaders and ask them to help you to go and reconcile this person. The whole idea here is reconciliation. And in the end, if the guy refuses to repent, if he refuses to deal with the sin in his life, then you treat him the way he's behaving, which is as if he was an unbeliever. And we read that passage and we go, yeah, this is the way we kick people out of the church. No, this is the way we get reconciled with people who are sinning. This is the way we get reconciled with people who have hurt us. And so he's been talking about reconciliation and forgiveness. And that's the context as we get to Matthew chapter 18, excuse me, chapter, yeah, chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. So I want us to pick it up there because that is what led Peter to do what he did. Verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, he's just been talking about this. If, you, if your brother sins against you, you want to be reconciled, you're going to have to forgive him. And then Peter comes and says, Hey, Lord, 
me and the boys have been talking about this, and we're not sure how this really works. How many times should we be willing to forgive somebody who has wronged us so many times? Should we forgive up to seven times? Which, by the way, I want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt, but it sounds to me like he's just trying to blow smoke here. Peter, Peter knows that the teaching of the rabbis has always been that we need to be extremely forgiving. In fact, there's a, the book, in the book of Amos, uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Amos, this little book um, written about this prophet Amos and, and what God's message was through him, it shows that God calls out the people of Israel three times on the same sin before when they won't repent, he finally judges them. And so the rabbis had always taught, based on the Amos passage, that you should forgive at least three times because that's what God did. In fact, the common teaching of the rabbis was go the extra mile and forgive four times. So if you want to be really spiritual, you should forgive someone up to four times. After four times, you write them off. And so Peter is trying to look extremely spiritual here to Jesus. And he comes to him and says, you know, I know that God forgave three times. I know the rabbis say to forgive four times. Should we forgive up to seven times? I mean, after all, we're your disciples. And Jesus responds in a very, very interesting way in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Or maybe some of your Bibles say, but up to 77 times. Mine says up to 70 times 7. It's actually kind of hard to interpret. We don't know the real number that he's got there. It's either 77 times or 70 times 7. Now, for you math geniuses out there, what is 70 times 7? 490. Gold stars for everybody. Good job. 490. So the point is clear. You are to forgive people 490 times, and on the 491st time, you could shoot them in the face. <laughs> That's basically what Jesus is saying, right? No, that is not what Jesus is saying. You guys are like, seriously? I think I'm up to like 370 with this one guy. The point Jesus is trying to make, whether he's saying 77 or 70 times 7, the point he's trying to make is it's an absurdly large number of times to forgive somebody. He's trying to say your willingness to forgive should never run out. It's supposed to be this ongoing thing. We should never be unwilling to forgive. Now, can you imagine what Peter and his guys must have thought when they heard this? That is absurd. That is ridiculous. I mean, certainly God doesn't want us to be doormats, does he? Certainly God is not calling us to be just uh, mercilessly abused by people over and over again, is he? How can God ask so much of us? It's an absurd thing to ask. And some of you right now are already thinking, yes, it's an absurd thing to ask. You're thinking about something that's happened in your life. You're thinking about someone who you can't trust. You're thinking about some hurt that is left over from your past that just keeps getting drudged up. And you're thinking, you know, there's some things that are easy to forgive. A guy cuts you off on the freeway, that's one thing, right? But if somebody molested you from the age of five to the age of 15, that's another thing, right? If somebody abused you in your marriage, that's another thing. If somebody um, 
ruined your reputation, if somebody stole from you, if somebody hurt you in some deep way and then did it again and again and again, like it is too much to ask to say that we're just going to forgive people and pretend that this sort of thing never happened. And for God to ask you to just keep forgiving people like that is just asking too much. And Jesus knew we would feel that way. So he tells a parable. And that parable begins in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, uh, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, i got to make sure we understand what's being said here. First of all, there's this uh, guy who owes the king 10,000 talents of gold. Now, a talent of gold was approximately 15 years' salary. And he owed him 10,000 talents, right? I did the math. I did it. I used my calculator, checked it twice. It's 150,000 years of salary this guy owed the king, okay? So when he says he owed him 10,000 talents, he's not trying to say he owed him a lot of money, when he says he owed him 10,000 talents, he's saying he owed him a sum so great that it would be literally impossible for him to repay it in a thousand lifetimes. It was an unpayable debt. 10,000 talents. 150,000 years wages. If you translate that into today's um, money, 10,000 talents equals a gazillion dollars. I did that math for you. Okay? And I think literally, if Jesus was here telling this story in English, that's probably what he would say. He would probably not say, uh, you know, a hundred thousand or a million. He would probably say a gazillion, billion, jillion dollars, right? Because he's not talking about an actual amount of money. He's talking about an amount of money too big for us to ever even consider being able to pay back. So that's what he owed him. That's a lot of money. It's an amount so huge that it would be impossible to expect him to ever repay it. And that is the point. Look at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. See, you had a choice according to the laws in this day and age. You had a choice if someone owed you a debt that they were not repaying. There were no bankruptcy courts. You had uh, two options. You could either have him thrown into debtor's prison, which was a prison that, uh, where life was so miserable that the idea was, even though he can't pay you from prison, that his loved ones, his friends and his family, would start a GoFundMe page. That was the idea that his friends and family would find a way to scrape together the money because he was suffering so much and they would want to get him out 
and so they could go to debtor's prison. That was one option. The other option you had is if the guy had anything, you could demand that what he had be sold so you could be repaid. And if it, what he had was not enough to repay you, then you could demand that he be sold into indentured servitude and you could demand that his family be sold into indentured servitude. Those were the two options. And so in this story, the king decides he's going to sell them into slavery. And so uh, he's going to sell him, he's going to sell his wife, he's going to sell his children, and the guy who has no hope of ever repaying him falls on his face and cries out and says, please, please have mercy on me, and, and if you'll just be patient, I will repay you everything that I owe you, which he knows is a lie and which the king knows is a lie. They know he cannot ever repay it, but he is still begging for mercy, saying, if you'll just give me time, I'll try to find a way to get this money and pay you back, but don't sell my family. So this is a very, very serious situation. He has no hope, and so he's begging for mercy. Verse 26, So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That is some kind of mercy. So we have a nice, happy ending to a nice story with a clear point, right? The point is that the kingdom of heaven is going to be populated only by people who owed a debt that was too great to pay, only to have God forgive our debts. Amen? So when you get to heaven, the people that you are going to see are going to have at least one thing in common with you. They couldn't afford to get in either. They needed mercy. They needed grace. Just like you and I need mercy and grace. We cannot repay the debt that our sin has accumulated only God can pay it for us. Only God can forgive it, right? And so heaven is going to be populated by people who have experienced extreme grace and extreme mercy and extreme forgiveness from God. It's a great story. But the story doesn't end there. There's a second chapter, and that begins in verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? Very familiar. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So he chose the debtor's prison route. And he decided to send this guy to prison over a hundred denarii. Now, what is a hundred denarii? A denarii is a day's wage for a laborer. So 100 denarii is about three and a half months' salary. So it's not an insignificant amount of money. I mean, it's a significant amount of money. It's only insignificant if you compare it to the debt that he was just forgiven by the king. Then it's nothing, right? And so this guy has been forgiven an enormous amount, but he's unwilling to forgive a relatively small amount. And when you live that way, People get offended. Look at verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I want you to notice what the king calls the slave. We know this as the parable of the unforgiving servant. But the Bible doesn't call him an unforgiving servant. What does his, his Lord call him? Wicked. Wicked. That's a strong term. You who will not forgive are wicked in your unforgiveness, it's saying. This is not just a minor faux pas. This is a major problem. And then he sums it up when the story is over, after he's been handed over to the torturers until he should repay everything that is owed. When will that be? Never, right? He's going to be tortured endlessly. Do you see the point? Endless torture. And so because the debt is too high to ever pay, the torture will be endless and you will still never pay off your debt. And then when he's told the whole story, he sums it up and he says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Gulp. He doesn't leave it to our imagination to figure out how serious he is. He says, the reason I'm telling you this story is so that you will understand that I consider unforgiveness a great evil. So much so that if you will not forgive others, then you too will be tortured endlessly. He's talking about hell. He's talking about the difference between people who know Jesus and people who don't. And he's saying people who know Jesus, people who have been forgiven so much, it should be the norm for those of us who have been forgiven much that we can much more easily forgive others the relatively small offenses that are owed against us. He's saying that if we're unwilling to show mercy and compassion, he will show no mercy and compassion to us. And we'll pay a terrible price for all of eternity. Man, that's harsh. Why would Jesus want to do that to us? He knows how hard it is to forgive. It's not that he's unaware of the pain that people go through when they are mistreated, when they are abused, when they are um, hurt and attacked and unloved. It's not that Jesus doesn't understand how painful it is when somebody gets involved in your life and messes with it and leaves you a, a pile of tears. And yet, he's telling us that if we don't genuinely forgive from our hearts, we'll not be forgiven ourselves. And that seems like terrible, terrible news. Especially when you make it personal and start thinking about the things that have hurt you the most in life, about the people who have hurt you the most in life. But by the way, this is not a new teaching. This is all over the Bible. 
This teaching on the significance of forgiveness and how we need to forgive just as God has forgiven us is all over scripture. Think just for a second of the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we... Jesus says when you pray, pray like this. Pray in such a way where you say to God on a regular basis, Lord, uh, forgive me just in the same way as I am forgiving those who hurt me. The kind of forgiveness we can expect from God is the kind of forgiveness we're willing to give to others. And let me show this to you in a different way. Just leave a marker there in Matthew. Go over to Luke chapter 6. Just uh, turn to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 6. And I want to show you a verse that is probably familiar to at least half the group. Here's what it says in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. How many of you have heard that verse before? You know when we hear it? We hear it in church right before the offering. It's, it's, a, it's about money, right? That, that the idea is that if you give to God, God will give to you, right? If you have a shovel full of cash that you give to God, he'll give you a snow shovel full of, of cash, right? The idea is you can't give, out-give God. The, the, the concept, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together. When I thought of that, I just kept picturing this. You know the, the yogurt shops where you get to fill your own yogurt thing? right? You know, you get it, it's pretty full, but what I learned is if you shake it and then pound it on the, on the table, there's room for like twice as much. It's the greatest thing, right? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. That's what he's talking about, and it's going to overflow into your lap. When you give, God's going to give to you. That's the idea, right? And so pastors use it before the offering, but here's the thing. It has nothing to do with money, That's not what the passage is about. We always have to read Scripture in its context. So let's go back to verse 27 in Luke chapter 6 and look at the context of what he's really trying to say here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. 
Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. He's not talking about your standard of measuring how much money you give. He's talking about your standard of measuring mercy. He's talking about the way you give forgiveness, the way you give pardon. And he uses all these dramatic examples. God comes up and smacks you on the right cheek. Turn and offer him the left cheek. What? A guy comes up and steals your coat. Take off your shirt and give that to him also. What? A guy comes up and says, I want to borrow 10 grand. Just give him the 10 grand and don't ever think about it again. What? He's, he's trying to make a point of the attitude that we're supposed to have, and that is that we are givers, that we give mercy. Those who mistreat us get forgiveness. Those who are unkind to us do not receive the same treatment in return, but instead he gives us the golden rule and says, instead of treating people the way they treat you, treat them the way you wish they would have treated you. That, that's the point. And he says, and when you do that, what you're going to find is God's grace and mercy and forgiveness flowing into your life. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing into your lap. This is one of the many passages where Jesus clearly teaches us that it should be the norm for followers of Christ to forgive the way Christ forgives. And he goes so far as to imply, if you're unwilling to forgive then you should question whether you've ever really received the forgiveness of Christ. This is a big deal to Jesus. And since it's a big deal, we need to get this right. Since it's a big deal, we need to understand what he's saying here. And if we're going to understand it, we're going to need to define some terms a little bit. So let's start with forgiveness. Because forgiveness, I think, is one of the most misunderstood terms in the English language. And so let me help you to understand what forgiveness is by dispelling some myths about forgiveness. In other words, I'm going to show you what forgiveness is by showing you what forgiveness is not. Um, forgiveness is not forgetting. See, there's something uh, floating around out there that I call the myth of the forgetful God. That, that we have this idea that our God, when he forgives us, he forgets our sin. Because we've been told since we were kids, forgive and forget, right? And so we have this idea that our God is a forgetful God, and, and it's because, you know, the scripture tells us in Psalm 103 that uh, he separates us from our sin as far as the east is separated from the west, which is an infinite amount, right? It says that he, in, in uh, Micah, it says that he buries our sin in the deepest sea, never to be dug up again. In... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, it says that when it comes to our confessed sin, he remembers it no more, right? To remember it no more is not the same as forgetting it. And one of the reasons we know that is just basic theology 101. The Bible tells us in a thousand different places, God is all-knowing. You can't be all-knowing and forget. You can't be all-knowing and learn. So there's some things God can't do because of his nature. He's not learning anything. He doesn't see you do something and go, wow, I never saw that coming. 
or he doesn't read a new article in, you know, the American Medical Association Journal and go, wow, who knew? The kidneys work like that, right? He doesn't learn anything, and because he doesn't learn, he doesn't change, and so he doesn't forget anything. So this idea when it says that he remembers your sin no more, I had somebody teach me when I was young that if you confess your sin and you say, Lord, you know, I used bad language the other day, yesterday, please forgive me for that. I confess, and I'm not going to do it anymore, and then a couple weeks later, you come back to God and you say, Lord, remember a couple weeks ago when I used that bad language? God will go, no, I don't know what you're talking about. That is not the God of the Bible. God doesn't forget. And so when he's calling us to forgive as Christ forgives, he is not asking us to forget. And if he was, he would be an unjust God because it is impossible to intentionally forget something, right? You can't just, just will yourself to forget something. And I mean, I forget things all the time on accident. I was pretty excited, though. Yesterday, I went into a room and actually remembered why I was there. That was, <laughs> it was a bathroom, I'll be honest, but at least <laughs> I remembered, right? <laughs> but God, is, he's not forgetting like we are. So when God says that we're supposed to forgive, he is not asking us to forget and that has such big ramifications because if we were expected to forget, first of all, it would be impossible to do, but if we even found a way to do it, then it would just put us in harm's way again and again and again and again. God is not looking for a way to make us miserable. He's not looking for a way to torture us. He's trying to give us life abundantly. So God knows that you still have memories from the times that you've been hurt. He knows about the scar tissue in your heart that when certain triggers happen, you, you see certain people, you, you hear certain things, that you're reminded and the pain comes rushing back and the emotions are there again. God understands that. He's not asking you to deny and pretend. He is commanding us, though, not to dwell there and hold the other person eternally accountable for it. He wants us to learn to let go. Not as a way of taking away our right to remember, but as a way of giving us life more abundantly. He's trying to give us peace. Unforgiveness, or what the Bible calls bitterness, is a terrible, terrible foe. You offend me, so I cling to my right to be miserable for the rest of my life. That's how bitterness works. You abuse me, and so I have ulcers and can't sleep at night while you sleep like a baby, right? You took something from me, so now I live in this cage of bitterness, unwilling to let go and begin to heal and begin to live my life with any kind of freedom. That's what happens when we let bitterness take hold in our hearts. You see, bitterness doesn't imprison the offender. Bitterness imprisons the victim. You don't have to forget in order to forgive, but if you're unwilling to forgive, you will never heal. It's that simple. Jesus is trying to set you free. Jesus is trying to give you life more abundantly. So forgiveness is not forgetting. And let's clear up another myth about forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. When you forgive someone, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to trust them. Here's the thing about forgiveness and trust. Forgiveness can never be earned. It can only be granted. Because no matter what the person does to try to get back into your good graces, if you don't let them, they're never back in. They can't earn it. You have to grant it. So forgiveness can only be granted. It can't be earned. Trust can only be earned. It can't be granted. You cannot be a person with a brain in your head and be able to just will yourself to trust a person who has shown themselves to be untrustworthy. If, if you left your child at a daycare center and the daycare worker there molested your child, you would not ask that person to come and babysit at your house, would you? No, that would be insane. You don't offer trust to someone who proves untrustworthy. You only give trust to people who show with a track record that they are trustworthy. Let me help you to see it from Scripture. Um, if you, you can read this on uh, your own t- this week at home. Luke chapter 4, John the Baptist is preaching, and he is uh, preaching that Jesus is coming, so you better repent, right? He's calling people to turn from their sin, to repent. And in a nutshell, what happens is, it's just like a harvest crusade. People are rushing down onto the field to repent, and they're going to be baptized in the Jordan River as a sign of their repentance. And they're coming by the dozens, by the hundreds, and even by the thousands. And as they're coming, a group comes to John, and they're Pharisees. They're the priests, they're the religious leaders. And they come and he, he looks at them and in essence he says, what are you doing here? And they say, well, you told us to come if we want to repent. And he, and he basically says, you guys need to get out of here. And they say, well, what do you want from us? And here's what he says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't talk to me about your repentance. Repent. And when you are repentant of your sin, it will be obvious. And you then begin to rebuild your track record. What John was saying is, I've been watching you guys for years. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you manipulate, you abuse. I've been watching the way that you guys live. I am not going to just assume that because you heard a sermon and got a tear in your eye that everything has changed in your life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John says. So this idea that I have to trust somebody who isn't trustworthy, not only is it dumb, but just like the forgetting thing, it's impossible. You can't wheel yourself to trust somebody. You either trust them or you don't. And you trust them or you don't based on their track record as you know it. And so the, the, the common example outside of scripture is, you know, a husband and wife and he has an affair with a woman at work. And she finds out and their marriage crashes and they go to counseling and they work on it for a long time and they rebuild their marriage and they give forgiveness and they get back on a good track and now things are going well. And suddenly he starts unexplainedly working late at night again. And he says, I'll be home at 6 and he comes in around 7.30. And when she asks, he gives her kinds of uh, vague answers. Well, you know, a lot of meetings, kind of busy day. And pretty soon she just says, look, what's her name? Why did you do this? And he looks at her, and I know this because I'm a marriage counselor, 
he looks at her and says something like, when are you ever going to trust me again? And the answer is, when you're trustworthy. She can't just decide to pretend that he's not behaving in a manner that leads her to believe that he's sinning. And so, when God calls us to forgive, he is not commanding us to do something that is beyond our ability to do it. He's expecting us to let Jesus work in our hearts in such a way that we can forgive. But don't think that forgiving means that you have to forget or that you have to trust. The day may come when the trust has been re-earned and then you grant that trust. But until then, you'd be a fool. So if you're struggling with bitterness, I have good news for you, but it sounds like bad news. So bear with me. Here it is. Your bitterness is your fault. We all think, I'm bitter because he hurt me. I'm bitter because she deserted me. I'm bitter because he abused me. And, and that's the reason I'm bitter. I didn't wake up this morning and say, I think I'll be bitter today. No, it's because people mistreated me. That's why I'm bitter. And here's what I have to say to that. The fact that you were abused, not your fault. The fact that you were deserted, not your fault. The fact that you were neglected, not your fault. But the way you respond to it is your choice, and therefore a wrong response is your fault. And I know that sounds harsh and condemning, but it's actually good news, because guess what? If it's your fault, that means, on the one hand, yes, you're accountable to God. You're going to have to repent of your own bitterness. You're going to have to deal with that. On the other side of the coin, it means you're not stuck. It means you can get out of this. It means you don't have to be miserable all the time. It means that you don't have to be held captive by what someone did to you 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago, 10 decades ago. It, it means you're no longer stuck. It means that this cage that you have been living in called bitterness that keeps you from really loving, that keeps you from really reaching out, that keeps you from caring for others, that keeps you all just tied up in a straitjacket, it means that God has given you the key. The key is in your hands and the cage opens with the key and the key is called forgiveness. God is not trying to take something away from us when he demands that we forgive others. He's trying to give us something. He's trying to set us free. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. So the bad news is you're accountable for your own bitterness. The good news is you're not stuck. In Ephesians chapter 4, let's just look there real quick. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's this great passage, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's at the very end of Ephesians 4. If you're in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, it's right between Galatians and Philippians. Go to Ephesians 4. And look with me at the last two verses of the chapter. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Here's what you need to know about this. This is a command. In the Greek, it's obviously a command. And so he's commanding us 
to put away bitterness, uh, wrath, anger, what else? Uh, clamor, slander. He says, put all those things away. Those are reactions to what other people do. It's like when the doctor comes along and hits you in, uh, below the knee and your, your reflex kicks out, right? It's a reaction. God calls us not to be reactors, but to be responders. When you react, you might be bitter, wrathful, angry, clamorous, slanderous. When you respond, you can be kind. That's your choice. When you respond, you could be tender-hearted. That's your choice. When you respond, you could be forgiving. That's your choice. You say, how can I? You can't. The Holy Spirit can do it through you. It's a matter of surrender to God. It's a matter of trusting God enough to say, I'm going to do what you call me to do. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be tender-hearted. See, God is just. And because he's just, he cannot command us to do anything that he doesn't empower us to do. You have the power, if you're a Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live as a responder and not a reactor. And he commands you to do it. Why? Because he wants to make you miserable, obviously. <laughs> no, because he wants to set you free. I came that they might have life and that more abundantly, said Jesus. He's offering something wonderful to you, the freedom to come out of the prison cell of bitterness and live a life of freedom through simple forgiveness. But remember the model prayer. We can only forgive our debtors in as much as we experience the forgiveness of God ourselves. Forgiveness is not something you can do on your own strength. It's something the Holy Spirit does through you. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It sets us free. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Are you living in such a way that is experiencing the power of forgiveness? Or are you living in the cage of bitterness? Jesus has already paid the price to set you free. The question is, will you use the key or will you live in the cage? It's up to you. Let's pray. God, today we just want to say thank you for your graciousness, for your kindness, that, that we can relate to the guy who owed 150,000 years wages. We can never repay it, but you came to us and forgave us a debt too big for us to ever repay. And God, forgive us for the fact that too many times we've been unwilling to forgive others in even smaller debt. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, each one of us individually, that we might live Monday through Friday in a way that actually embraces this kind of forgiveness. That this is not just a weekend thing for when we come to church, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we would know the freedom, the joy, the peace of being set free. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.